0: Hello, Uh, uh, my name is Elizabeth Foy, I'm um, the head of St Paul's Forum here. Welcome to Familiar Faces and New Faces. Thanks so much for coming in today on this lovely sunny day. You will not regret the sacrifice of even an English hour of summer (laughs) (laughs) for coming here, and it's going to be sunny all afternoon. Um, I'm just here to uh, introduce Michael Hample, many of whom, uh, many of you will know who he is. He's our beloved presenter here, Um, so in charge of liturgy and music. But, uh, percent of by day, amateur theatrical by night. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he's been involved in theatre all his life, grew up in Stratford, so in the blood, uh, went to Shakespeare's school uh, many, many centuries afterwards. <laughs> uh, and I know, uh, I know from other sources that his Benedict from Theological College lives in legend. <laughs> but he also has a long, um, deep, passionate interest in Dorothy L. Sayers, um, both as a theologian and as a creative writer. She's best known, of course, for her uh, detective novels with Lord Peter Whimsey, but she's a substantial theologian, a radical theologian. She's joined us today. Uh, Michael and I are both expecting to sound a slight tutting if anything <laughs> goes wrong. She's having a cigarette, marvellously of the time. Um, and uh, he's going to talk particularly today about the man born to be king, it was a very uh, controversial series of plays broadcast in the Second World War, um, which was a, one of those sort of jolts to the national life, really, at the time. <coughs> He's going to talk about that. But also, um, I just want to say as a plug, really, that there were a series of fantastic contemplative services uh, that Michael organised, uh, inspired by her theology of creativity, which were filmed and were up on the website and were with um, Clarissa Dixon-Smith, And uh, P. D. James, James. Frank Skinner, and what do others? So about, so I'd say check them out on the website because if you're interested in creativity and theology, they're fantastically interesting. And now to Michael. Thank you, Michael.
1: Thank you very much. thanks very much indeed and thanks Elizabeth for your welcome it's always wonderful to be allowed to wax lyrical about Dorothy L Sayers and yes she is staring down at us Uh, I've on loan from the National Portrait Gallery don't tell Pim Baxter so Dorothy L Sayers uh, detective novelist Christian apologist and translator of Dante is one of the most fascinating figures of the 20th century field of literature and theology, if only because she believed passionately that all human creative activity was a reflection of divine creative activity, because that is what it means to be made in the image of God. More of that later. Sayers was born in 1893, the only daughter of the Reverend Henry Sayers and Helen Mary Lee and her mother's letters reveal a very beautiful literary style which clearly inspired her daughter Dorothy and the L of Dorothy L Sayers is Lee, her mother's maiden name and Dorothy L Sayers was insistent that the L was always there so please never refer to her as Dorothy Sayers, she is Dorothy L Sayers but that's a tribute to her mother. She was born into the academic world of Oxford, where her father was headmaster of Christ Church Cathedral School. And when she was four, her father became rector of Bluntisham Cum Erith in Huntingdonshire, the, the Fenlands. She was educated at home, and then from the age of 15 at the Godolphin School in Salisbury, at which cathedral she was confirmed at the age of 16 and already she's showing signs of great precocity because she writes to her parents about the experience of being prepared for confirmation and her experience of the confirmation itself. And what she says reveals much about the woman and also reveals what she thought was the ideal way of expressing the Christian faith. She describes two types of Christianity, the sentimental, which made her feel uncomfortable, and the intelligent, which she saw embodied in the language of Scripture and the architecture of the church. She, of course, preferred the latter type of Christianity, although even at this young age, she saw that people in general were afraid of the intellect and sought to avoid searching questions about faith something that she put right several decades later. In October 1912, she took up a scholarship at Somerville College, Oxford, to read modern languages. Amongst the preliminary examinations that she was required to pass to be admitted to an honours degree course was divinity moderations, theology, involving the translation of New Testament Greek and familiarity with the subject matter of the Acts of the Apostles. She wrote to her parents, having read two gospels with more attention than I had ever before given to the subject, I came to the conclusion that such a set of stupid, literal, pig-headed people never existed as Christ had to do with, including the disciples. She was clear that these types of people still populated the church in her own day and it was perhaps her mission in life to contend with such people and convert them. She earned a first-class honours degree in 1915, although at this stage women were still only admitted to Oxford to read for their degree but not to graduate in it. And so she had to wait until the rules were changed to attend a degree ceremony, and she did so in 1920, and was actually amongst the very first batch of women to walk forward on the first day to receive her Oxford degree. After completing her studies, she worked for Basil Blackwell, bookseller and publisher, taught in Hull and in France before settling in London with a job at S.H. Benson's, the great advertising agency. And it should be noted that her work at Benson's was no mere prelude to fame, because although people may not know that Dorothy Alsayer's worked for an advertising agency called Benson's, they will certainly know her most enduring legacy from this employment, Because it was Sayers who gave the world the famous slogans of Guinness and its toucan. And this is an original postcard of one of her slogans. If you can say as he can, Guinness is good for you. How grand to be a toucan. Just think what two can do. (laughs) That, ladies and gentlemen, is Dorothy L. Sayers. So we've got drinking and smoking going on over here. (laughs) That's it there. During this period Sayers began work on her first detective novel, Whose Body, which was eventually published in 1923 when Sayers was 30. And once Whose Body had been published, her career as a novelist was established and her detective creation, Lord Peter Wimsey, together with the fictional crime writer Harriet Vane, who works alongside him in most of the novels, took an unassailable place in the league of fictional detectives. And her work progressed to that of full-time novelist and writer until 1937, when her career followed a new route. And this is what happened. She was asked by Margaret Babington, who was, I think, the secretary or the chair of the Friends of Canterbury Cathedral and who worked for the Canterbury Festival to write a play for the festival. Babington wrote to Sayers, why why should Babington write to a detective novelist to write a religious drama for a a, a literary festival in a cathedral? She wrote to Sayers at the suggestion of Charles Williams, a friend of C.S. Lewis's, one of the Inklings who worked in Oxford, because Williams had written the previous year's drama for the festival, his play Thomas Cranmer of Canterbury. But he remembered many years before having read and admired a very small morality play called The Mocking of Christ, which Sayers had written and published in a set of poems for Blackwell's in 1918. It's in a volume called Catholic Tales and Christian Songs. But apart from this work, she produced no other writing of a religious nature. She accepted the challenge, however, and the play The Zeal of Thy House was the first of five religious plays, which, along with a large and diverse series of other religious writings, marked the second stage of her career. Meanwhile, in April 1926, she had married Oswald Arthur Fleming, known as Mack, in a register office. He was divorced. The marriage wasn't a particularly fulsome one, but it did bring Sayers some degree of stability in the aftermath of an unplanned pregnancy and the birth of her son to another man John Anthony Fleming, that was the name of her son, in 1924. And, of course, in the age in which she lived, she was naturally very anxious about her personal life and the fear of the exposure uh, for having had an illegitimate child through an affair. Her son was brought up anonymously by a cousin, Ivy Shrimpton, although Sayers was fully involved in providing for him and saw much of him and he was eventually informed of his mother's true identity. But then, as a result of her religious drama and her religious writings, she found herself with the unwanted role of a Christian apologist and that, together with her anxiety about her personal life, may in part explain her rejection of an honorary Lambeth doctorate. Have you ever heard of anyone rejecting an honorary Lambeth doctorate? It was offered by William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1943. And her reply to his invitation to accept the conferment of this degree is illuminating on several fronts. This is what she wrote to him. Thank you very much indeed for the great honour you do me. I find it very difficult to reply as I ought, because I am extremely conscious that I don't deserve it. A doctorate of letters, yes, I've served letters as faithfully as I know how, but I've only served divinity, as it were, accidentally coming to it as a writer rather than as a Christian person. A degree in divinity is not, I suppose, intended as a certificate in sanctity, exactly, but I should feel better about it if I were a more convincing kind of Christian. I'm never quite sure whether I really am one or whether I've only fallen in love with an intellectual pattern. Now, as a Durham graduate myself, I'm very glad to tell you that it was ultimately only the University of Durham which made her an offer she couldn't refuse when it conferred upon her the honorary degree of Doctor of Letters in 1950. Quite right, too. And then her career took its final turn in a new direction in the 1940s when she began to read Dante's Divine Comedy partly because of a book by Charles Williams on the subject, the figure of Beatrice, and partly as a means of passing time in the all-too-familiar surroundings of the air-raid shelter of the Second World War. Uh, She wrote that uh, one night when the siren went off, she raced for the air raid shelter, wanted a book to read, and the first one that came to her hand was Charles Williams' The Figure of Beatrice. The air raid finished. She stayed down there until she'd finished reading his book. And then she found herself, uh, through her, her correspondence with Williams, uh, she found herself uh, being asked by Penguin Classics uh, to uh, complete a translation Uh, for them, uh, for for the Penguin Classic Series, and I've got it lying here for you to have a look at if you want. She completed the first two, Inferno and Purgatorio, but she died in 1957 before completing her work on the third volume, Paradiso. And in fact, the third volume was completed by her goddaughter, her friend, her biographer, the Italian scholar Barbara Reynolds Um, and I should say that Barbara Reynolds uh, only died uh, at the end of April at the age of 100 just short of her 101st birthday but she had become by then a world authority on Sayers and by far the best biography of Sayers is the one which Barbara Reynolds wrote. It's Dorothy L. Sayers' Her Life and Soul which is also lying here. Don't buy it though because it's my only copy. So I, I just wanted to say that because I'd also like to pay tribute to Barbara Reynolds who was a very great woman and remained very active uh, in terms of her travelling the world to talk about Sayers until only very recently. So why does this very successful writer of detection fiction, detective fiction leave Lord Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane aside to take up a career as a religious dramatist and commentator on theology? It may have something to do with her own belief that the problems of human society can't be solved, as she put it, in the same manner as the death in the library. That while a detective novel presents its readers with a problem which has a solution, the analytic approach to problem and solution doesn't sit well with the artist's belief that life is not a problem to be solved, but a medium for creation. What the artist does is to try to create forms of expression which help men and women on their journey towards a final resolution. But the artist knows that the final resolution lies outside the arena of the material world we have to go back to rehearsals for her first play, The Zeal of Thy House, at Canterbury Cathedral in 1937, to find out more about her departure from detective fiction and her assumption of the mantle of a religious dramatist. Unlike some dramatists, Sayers didn't merely write her play and attend its first night's opening. She was intricately involved in every aspect of casting, production, design, and publicity. She attended rehearsals, sometimes to the chagrin of the director. She helped to stitch costumes together and virtually moved into Canterbury during the week prior to the play's run in the Chapter House in June of that year. And I remember having the enormous privilege of sitting down in Oxford Uh, many years ago with Anne Riddler, the poet, who had also been T.S. Eliot's secretary. And she and her husband had been at the first night of this play. I mean, what a privilege to sit with somebody who'd who'd been there that night. And they they said, they commented quite amusingly on that Sayers just wouldn't sit still. She was jumping up and running backstage and changing things and probably rewriting bits of the script as as these poor actors were about to go on. But a very, um, somebody (laughs) who wanted... Somebody wanted to be involved in every aspect of uh, what of the of the creative process. Now it wasn't her first experience of the theatre. She'd already begun work on the dramatization of one of her whimsy stories, Busman's Honeymoon, for the comedy theatre here in London. I think it's now the might be the Novello or something now. I can't remember which, or the Gilgood. I think maybe, no, the Novello. And amidst the hustle and bustle of the theatre world, she saw a paradigm, a human analogy, with the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. She saw in the collaboration of producer, actor, set designer, costume maker, an energy which turned her, the writer's idea, into something which the audience could then receive and respond to. And this perception inspired her when she came to write The Zeal of Thy House to include a speech, almost as an epilogue, to be spoken by the Archangel Michael at the very end of the play. And I'm going to quote the speech to you in full, and as you listen to it, you might try and consider it in relation to the three Persons of the Holy Trinity. This is the speech. For every work of creation, is threefold, an earthly triunity to match the heavenly. First, there is the creative idea, passionless, timeless, beholding the whole work complete at once, the end in the beginning, and this is the image of the Father. Second, there is the creative energy begotten of that idea and working in time from the beginning to the end with sweat and passion, being incarnate in the bonds of matter. And this is the image of the Word. Third, there is the creative power, the meaning of the work and its response in the lively soul. And this is the image of the indwelling Spirit. And these three are one, each equally in itself the whole work whereof none can exist without other. And this is the image of the Trinity. So, in The Zeal of Thy House, Sayers is comparing and contrasting the work of the human maker with the work of the divine maker. In a nutshell, she's suggesting that the artistic process of creating a work of art, be it novel, drama, art, music, whatever, involves three elements which are directly analogous to the three Persons of the Holy Trinity. I should say that when I came across Sayers' theological writing, I was sufficiently struck by this analogy with the doctrine of the Trinity that I regarded as by far the best means of articulating the doctrine to the popular mind. But I also regard it as a perfect means of talking about God to people who are suspicious Of the otherwise prohibitive nature of much religious teaching. Sayers' analogy is a wholly creative, positive and persuasive way of talking about God by showing people that they can be engaged in collaboration with God rather than in subjection to God. Sayers is a writer so she uses her own craft to illustrate what her analogy means. The writer has an idea. The idea exists as a single entity in the mind of the writer, but as soon as the writer begins to ponder the idea, he or she gives it a sequence in time, a beginning, a middle, and an end, to put it crudely. This turning of the idea into reality, which also, of course, means writing it down, is the energy which gives the idea a material form. The book, once it's written and published, is then released upon the world for readers both to read and to comment on. And at this point, the idea and the energy have a power in the form of impact and response. The idea is God the Father, the energy is God the Son, and the power is God the Holy Spirit. I think it's brilliant. It means you're never afraid of being asked to preach on um, Trinity Sunday, if you've got that one. Now, of course, Sayers wasn't trying to imply that everything which passed as art could also pass the test of this analogy with the Holy Trinity, because she acknowledged, and we all know, that there's a lot of bad art with which it would be an insult to the Divine Trinity to make a comparison. Rather, and this is very important for the Church's patronage of the arts, Sayers would argue that this very analogy with its creative template places a huge responsibility on the shoulders of all artists and certainly on those artists who are commissioned by Christian institutions to produce works of art to the greater glory of God. The more she thought about and wrote on the subject of Christian aesthetics, the more sharply critical she became of the Church's attitude to the arts. Listen to this in a letter to Count Michael de la Bédouillère of the Catholic Herald. She drew comparisons between the vocation of an artist and the vocation of a priest. This This is what she says. "'Neither in my own church nor in yours can I find any general understanding of the facts that the Christian artist, or other maker, must serve God in his vocation which is just as truly his vocation as though he were called to be a priest, that if his work is not true to itself, it cannot be true to God or anything else, and that bad art is bad Christianity, however much it may be directed to edification or adorned with emasculated Christs, spineless virgins and cotton-wool angels, uttering pious sentimentalities. And further, that to take novelists and playwrights away from doing good work in their own line, whether secular or devotional in content, and collar them for the purpose of preaching sermons or opening church bazaars, is a spoiling of God's instrument and defeats its own aims in the end. Wow, love to have met her. There is one recording of her on Woman's Hour and giving... uh, uh, Jenny Murray's predecessor, quite a hard time. <laughs> she explains all of this in a book which arose out of that final speech of the archangel Michael at the end of the zeal of thy house, which is her principal theological work. It's called The Mind of the Maker, and it was published in 1941. I've got a couple of editions lying here, and they're quite easy to find on second-hand websites like um, ABooks and Amazon and so on. And in this book, Sayers enlarges her argument that the divine maker and the human maker are in collaboration with each other. And she begins chapter 2 with a brilliant interpretation of the Genesis claim that God made humankind in God's own image. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. And she wants to know what it means to be made in the image of God. She recognizes how easy it is to fall into the trap of thinking that it means that we look like God, Uh, and yet she points out that nothing in the book of Genesis prior to this verse tells us anything about God except for one thing, that God created. And from this note she gives us one of the pithiest, and yet in my opinion the truest interpretation of that verse which I've ever read. That men and women are most godlike when they are making things. And so, to the greatest of her dramatic works, The Man Born to Be King, a series of 12 radio plays on the life of Christ, written between 1942 and 1943 for broadcast on BBC Radio. These are more examples of her ability to popularize religion in an intelligent and creative way. She called her religious drama variations upon a hymn to the master maker. The BBC commissions the man born to be king from Sayers for children's hour because she had already just written for them in 1941, I think it was, a play for children's hour based on the nativity story it's called he that should come I've got it lying here it is absolutely brilliant and if you want ever to escape from um, to quote say as the pious sentimentalities of the nativity story uh, read he that should come uh, one of the greatest scenes of all is the group of people sitting outside the inn around a fire people from every part of the at Roman Empire talking to each other and debating theology and then in the distance they hear a child screaming. Uh, it, it's, it's stunning stuff and, and that had been broadcast on the radio so the BBC come back for more and they commissioned these 12 plays for Children's Hour um, but it wasn't long before whole families were sitting around the radio to listen to each of the plays as they came out at the height of the Second World War. Now, what's fascinating about it, one of the many things that's fascinating about the series of plays, of course, is that it was made in contemporary language and in a robust and rigorous style, which demanded attention and response. In her preface to the published edition of these plays, there's a a fabulous preface, a great piece of theology uh, at the beginning of this. In the preface, Sayers herself set the condition that the intellectual coherence of theology was only advantageous to the dramatic structure if it was a complete theology. She said, a loose and sentimental theology begets loose and sentimental art forms. Think Christmas. Do we get Christmas right, Uh, really? So enthused was Sayers by this new milieu of dramatic art that she was encouraged to suggest again in the preface, that there is no more searching test of a theology than to put it upon the stage and allow it to speak for itself. Sayers rejected the notion that her intention in writing the plays had been to do good. Remember her words to the Archbishop of Canterbury that I read earlier. She didn't think that she was trying to do good by writing these plays. That, she said, was the intention of those who commissioned the plays, but her object was merely to tell the story to the best of her ability. In The Man Born to be King, Sayers uses theology and dogma as her material, and not as an external end to which the drama is directed. As far as she's concerned, Theology and dogma are, as it were, the sculptor's clay or the artist's paint. In another line in the preface, Sayers challenges contemporary society to consider itself as actors in the drama today who, unlike the audience, don't know the outcome yet, unless that is, they reenact the original story with themselves playing the original parts. And towards the conclusion of this preface, Sayers returns to her insistence that the materials required for the writer of such plays as those she is presenting are given in the theology and dogma of the Christian Church and she indicates in an essay that she writes around about the same time as she's working on these plays, it's an essay called um, The Dogma is the Drama, that it's only through an insipid and pedestrian use of these materials that the shattering personality, as she describes it, of Christ comes across as dull. This is what she says. To make an adequate dramatic presentation of the life of God incarnate would require literally superhuman genius in playwright and actors alike. We are none of us, I think, under any illusions about our ability to do what the greatest artists who ever lived would admit to be beyond their powers. Nevertheless, when a story is great enough, any honest craftsman may succeed in producing something not altogether unworthy, because the greatness is in the story and doesn't need to borrow anything from the craftsman. It is enough that he should faithfully serve the work. The series was highly controversial. In an age accustomed only to readings from the King James Version of the Bible in church, To hear the characters of the Gospels chatting to each other in contemporary speech was scandalous. It's almost impossible for us to try and work that out, but it was scandalous. Questions were raised in Parliament, truly, about the advisability of the project. Fortunately, the Prime Minister was in favour, as was the Archbishop of Canterbury. There was a grave concern that people would listen to the account of our Lord's Passion on the radio in the kitchen while doing the washing up. (laughs) And, to make matters worse, Sayers employed slang in some of the spats which she depicts between the disciples. On one occasion, one of the disciples tells Matthew that he's been had for a sucker. So not only slang, American slang. The Protestant Truth Society and the Lord's Day Observance Society led the campaign to have the plays banned. In her preface Sayers thanks them. This is what she says. It is moreover irresistibly tempting or is it kind or Christian, to mention the Lord's Day Observance Society and the Protestant Truth Society, who so obligingly did all our publicity for us, (laughs) at, I fear, considerable expense to themselves. Without their efforts, the plays might have slipped by with comparatively little notice, being given as an hour inconvenience for grown-up listening. C.S. Lewis, by contrast, made the series of plays his annual Lenten reading for many years and uh, ultimately spoke uh, what well, was, was, was supposed to speak uh, at her memorial service uh, after she died. He was ill at the time and, and what he wrote was read out. The plays are completely faithful to the Gospel accounts and they are primarily based on St. John's Gospel. Sayers weaves elements of the Gospel drama and the different incidents of the narrative together in order to enhance the dramatic form, but also to amplify the intention of the Gospel writers. So, to give you an example of this, in the third of the plays, which is called A Certain Nobleman, at her depiction of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus is a guest, Jesus is called upon by the local rabbi to tell the guests what the kingdom is and how soon they may look for its coming. And Jesus rises to his feet at the wedding breakfast and proceeds to edify and, indeed, to entertain the guests with, very appropriately for a wedding setting, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Furthermore, Sayers makes the nobleman of Capernaum, whose son is dying, a guest at the wedding. And this man is greatly struck but also perturbed by what he hears Jesus say. The bridegroom's mother, Susanna, turns to him and says, "'Well, my Lord Benjamin, that was nice and short, wasn't it? And he didn't shout or denounce anybody or anything, just a simple story. To which the nobleman replies, I don't know, I don't know. It's a fact. One ought to think more about religion and all that. Too late, that's an ugly thought. What do you say, Rabbi Solomon? And the rabbi responds deeply moved, too late. I am 80 years old and I thought too late. Too late now to behold the kingdom but the bridegroom came at midnight. And then later, when the nobleman returns to Capernaum to learn that his son has only hours to live, he remembers what he heard Jesus say at the wedding, and despite his faltering faith, he saddles horses and races back to Cana, where Sayers depicts the scene in which he begs Jesus to heal his son and another miracle is wrought. And this weaving together of incident and relationship not only makes brilliant drama out of the Gospel accounts, but also helps us to make connections between the characters and the incidents and lifts the words off the page and brings a third dimension to them, which is truly incarnational. The notes which Sayers writes on each character at the beginning of each of the twelve plays in the published edition are brilliantly concise commentaries and, in addition, the imaginary conversations which she creates between well-known characters are profoundly theological and beautifully spiritual. In the seventh play, The Light and the Life, which revolves around the raising of Lazarus, one of Jesus' friends, along with his sisters Mary and Martha. Sayers has the four of them sitting on the veranda of their home in the early evening before supper. And yes, of course, Martha is in the kitchen, but is drawn out to listen to what Jesus is saying. And as many commentators do, Sayers equates this Mary with the Mary who anoints Jesus' feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee and she has Mary say this to Jesus kind rabbi when I fell at your feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee did you know my companions and I came there that day to mock you we thought you would be sour and grim hating all beauty and treating life as an enemy but when I saw you I was amazed. You were the only person there that was really alive. The rest of us were going about half dead, making the gestures of life, pretending to be real people. The life was not with us, but with you, intense and shining, like the strong sun when it rises and turns the flames of our candles to pale smoke. And I wept and was ashamed, seeing myself such a thing of trash and tawdry. But when you spoke to me, I felt the flame of the sun in my heart. I came alive for the first time, and I love life all the more since I've learnt its meaning. It's brilliant stuff, and I think worth a hundred biblical commentaries. All I've done today really is to introduce the woman to you and introduce the man born to be king to you in the hope that you'll take up the challenge and find the text and maybe read it for yourself. It is very good Lenten reading. In The Man Born to be King, I believe that Dorothy L. Sayers gave the world a vigorous reinterpretation of Christian doctrine without in any way challenging the central tenets of that doctrine. She stripped away centuries of drabness and dreariness to reveal the exciting, dramatic pulse which lies at the root of the Christian inheritance. She described the Christian story as the greatest drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. She said, we may call that doctrine exhilarating or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. Thanks for listening to me.